0: Starting up with Zone on Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Indeed it is. Each and every Thursday, one through till two, uh, where I'm joined by the chairman, no less. The chairman is in the house. He's in the studio. Mr Neil Petsch, always a pleasure, never a chore, Mr Peter. to see you. How's the week been at uh, Zone HQ? Well, it just got better because beer just walked in the door. Quite right, too. Looking forward to this uh, first of many interviews this afternoon. We always kick things off with our success spotlight. Easy for me to to say. Uh, And they don't get much more successful than uh, our, uh, our special guest this afternoon. You may have heard him on the radio Numerous times. Great friend, not just of starting up, but of Dubai I-103.8. Always very generous with his time uh, and always a great opinion uh, to Ghana as well. He was then the chief executive and registrar of the DIFC courts. uh, Named one of the top 50 most influential Brits in the UAE by Forbes Middle East. Um, Were you above or below him on that list, Mr P.? Uh, absolutely non existent on that list. Uh, but I, I'm
2: going to give a shout out to Mark actually, because in my experience, as startups, we need to recruit people with expertise. But so often, the more expert you are, the less commercial and real life you are. And Mark's one of the best examples of combining the two. There you go, Mark.
1: He was appointed as an officer of the most excellent order of the British Empire by uh, Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth II in her uh, 2013 birthday honours list uh, for his work strengthening relations between the UK and the UAE. Since then, he's been around the world as a commercial advisor and an international speaker. It doesn't end there. He's a lawyer. He's a futurist. He's a pilot. He's a dark... Good bloke as well, and he joins us <laughs> live in studio. Welcome, Mark Beer, OBE.
3: Oh, that's very kind. And the last bit, the good bloke, that's probably the best <laughs> accolade of all of them. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be back. Gosh, Dubai is absolutely on fire, isn't it? I haven't been, not just the temperature, uh, you know, economically, commercially, the SME sector, what VirtuZone is doing in empowering SMEs, it's it's just fantastic to be back.
1: Listen, um, I'm going uh, 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 to be a little bit greedy on this occasion because I'm off to a graduation a little later on uh, this afternoon. Um, we want to talk about you, what you're up to now, what you've been up to uh, since you left EIFC, etc. But it certainly seems that law and the studying of the law has helped you along that path as well. Have you ever sat throughout your
3: illustrious career, Mark, look back and gone, wish I hadn't studied law? Never. Absolutely never. I started working in summer holidays in a law firm when I was 16. And I never looked back. Um, and when I chaired the Oxford and Cambridge Society here, parents would often come up and say, you know, my child wants to study law, and what do you think? And, and, And students would ask me, you know, should I go and study law at university? And Quite often I'd say to them, well, what's your motivation? Why would you want to go and study law? It's one of the hardest courses to get into. It's one of the hardest courses at university in terms of a constraint on your time. It's one of the hardest jobs to get a trainee contract for. You're really entering. It's like medicine. You're entering a profession, but it's an incredibly hard profession. Why would you choose that? And I'd say 80% of the time people say, well, you know, I see it on TV or I'm going to make some money. You know, lawyers are rich. And I always, in the nicest way, counsel them and say that's not—it's not a good reason to get into law. Yes, if you get into law, you may well, you know, make a lot of money, mm. but that's not your motivator, and it's never been mine. The reason you get into the law, and the only reason to get into the law, and what will drive your success in the law, is a genuine desire to help people. Mm. If you have a genuine desire to help people, if it, imp- if it motivates you, if you get energised when you, you can solve a problem for someone, if that's what you love doing, the law's for you. People say, well, I'm a good at arguing. I say, yeah, but that's, you know, that's not what the law's about. You know, it's, it's really not like TV. You don't stand up in court every day like Rumpole and argue your case and, and beat the other side by brilliance. There isn't a needle in a haystack. It's a process of assimilating complicated facts and applying them in a way that helps move something forward and and if that's helping someone and that is that what drives you then you'll be a fantastic lawyer Mm. and and that's in everything I've done in my career it's been about how can we help people to achieve their goals or to get away from a stressful or difficult situation and and I still I love it every day I wake up in the morning and think who can I help today what can we do today it's it's wonderful
2: what percentage of your time, Mark, are you actually pouring over legalities rather than being the ambassador for a number of the projects that you work
3: on? Well, I really enjoy um, detail. I really enjoy taking a large amount of information and trying to assimilate it, process it. You know, write it down, put it into an order, a structure, try and link the pieces together. So. I spend – when I do do that, I'll turn the phone off and I'll turn everything off and I'll sit and I can spend two, three hours doing that and I love it, the intellectual challenge. Um, Equally, when you're on the phone to someone and they're in distress or they want to achieve something and you know the solution, you can see the solution, you can help them get there, then that's also a really – positive way to spend the day so of my day uh, as you know I have an amazing wife and five fantastic children and they also present opportunities to help people along the way so of my day from waking hours until going to bed I feel like I'm always generally there trying to help somebody achieve something or or do something.
2: I I suppose one of the things that we at VirtuZone are proud of when we're talking to global uh, businessmen is we've got two international financial centres here. You've been something of an ambassador for initially DIFC and and beyond that now. How how do you sell that vision? Because this is a big part of, of the UAE's USP,
3: isn't it? The vision is about choice. Uh, and, it, and it boils down to the what I think is at the core of one of the UA's values, which is tolerance. And tolerance go hand in hand with choice, allowing people that freedom of worship, that freedom of religion that we've seen in the recent reforms to the law, um, particularly when it comes to inheritance and the like. And that, there's federal law and local law. But equally, if a business person feels more comfortable in environment A or environment B or environment C – what city, what metropolis wouldn't want to offer that business person the place that makes them feel most comfortable, to be tolerant of what they like? And the, the, the international financial centre model was built as a replica of existing financial centres modelled on New York and London and Singapore, Hong Kong and elsewhere. So it was a way in which you could say to institutions, if you feel more comfortable in that type of environment, we've got that environment for you just here. If you feel more comfortable in a different type of environment, we've got that for you too. If you're more familiar operating in this language, you can operate entirely in this language. And in this language over here, you can operate entirely in that language. So it was a way of offering choice to business around the world to say this can be your home and you can feel comfortable and familiar with the way in which the systems operate.
2: Commercial question for you, Mark. We, we had the uh, chief operational officer of Weo on, on a couple of weeks ago. They've started onboarding Chinese customers. We've had a wave of Russian speaking people coming in. And that's why you were probably sat in a traffic jam uh, earlier today. The Chinese investment increasing as well. Obviously, the Durham is pegged to the dollar. What's DIFC's role in, in that and in allowing business people from all over the world, providing they're the right kind of person to be able to transact efficiently?
3: Well, the starting point is the central bank, and the central bank has always been visionary in its acceptance of um, international trade. Um, and if you start at the central bank and work your way down from the central bank into the financial centres um, – the UA provides this environment where if you want to trade in multi-currency, you want to do something very complicated, let's say, then there are institutions in the financial centers that are world class that can help you. If you want to do, say, pure trade finance, then you've got amazing institutions that are that are onshore and mm-hmm. possibly also dirham type of denominated business you do on shore international transactions the model was you do those through the financial center but there's always going to be a home for business to succeed that's that was the concept right you never want to turn someone away because you can't accommodate their wishes provided and it's so important neil you mention it provided it's done in accordance with the the laws and the policies and this, and the the culture I- inherent in this region i was at a panel discussion last night and a lot of the discussion was around, well, it's different here, as if different is bad. Mm. And I said, but you're looking at this through the wrong end of the telescope. It's different, but different isn't bad. Different is different. Mm. So let's understand that di- before we get into an overt criticism, let's actually look at the differences. Let's understand it. You know, I always used to hear, oh, the civil law. Oh, it's nowhere near as good as the common law. <laughs> then I go to a, a, you know, another meeting. Oh, the common law it's nowhere near as good as the civil law. And, and the truth is they both have good, good components and they both have components where they could learn from each other. What we tried to build in DIFC was what the Canadians call a trans-systemic system. That is, you take the best of both yeah. and you put it together. So if you look at the enforcement regime in DIFC, it's a civil law system because that is by far the most efficient enforcement system in the world. But if you look at, say, taking evidence, you know, listening to people, witnesses, that comes from the common law. So we took that system.
1: I've got to ask you, once uh, we've got you here, Mark, about the future, if I may. You, of course, um, uh, are a futurist by trade, as one of the many talents that you bring to the uh, thing, and have been very, very open about embracing the future, uh, whether it be on the planet that we currently call Earth or elsewhere <laughs> in the solar system. Um, Big question, doing the rounds uh, in business, in life at the moment, is is a robot going to nick my job? Now, what's the point that a robot's going to nick my job in a couple of years' time? ChatGPT is all the rage at the moment. We've talked about it a lot here on the show. We've talked about people who've gone through zone using ChatGPT and embracing it for the better as well. Uh, the legal world, though, are looking over their shoulder saying, oh, hang on, we've been singled out as the profession that might be on the the wrong end
3: of chat GPT. Are you worried about artificial intelligence? Not worried at all. Embrace it. Absolutely embrace it. Um, The website, the Absolutely um, wonderful and, and uh, as credible as you would expect it to be. Website www.willarobottakemyjob.com. It? My favourite. <laughs> suggests that lawyers aren't, don't have much to worry about. Last time I looked, it was 5%. I think that's wrong. Any profession which works on the inefficiency of the system is going to be uh, reformed, transformed by AI. And the legal sector, along with many others, um, work on, to some extent, one earns more. Based on how inefficient you know you are, if you charge by the hour, I always say you know if if your builder came round, your builder comes around to do something on the house, and, and you said okay, you know if you got the yeah, I've got the qualifications to do this, you say fantastic, how much would it cost? It's difficult to say, you know it could be complex well how long will it take yeah it takes as long as it takes there's a lot of complexity regulations have to apply for licenses have to buy the stuff it's gonna take a while wall's got to come out out
2: (laughs) you'd be a tremendously successful builder
3: do you you know what the number of builders we come across that say it's going to be this much and to be finished on this date and it's just as effective (laughs) as saying i don't know how much it will be you know whatever but you know if you what people want is certainty when they come and say give me help they want to know are you qualified to do it? When can you do it by? And how much will it cost? And lawyers have been terrible at that. We've relied on this old model of, well, I'll take as long it'll take as long as it takes. I'll send you a bill every month and you just pay it and I'll carry on. Mm-hmm. So AI removes all of that. And I, I actually taught the ethics course for the Dubai Legal Affairs Department here, which is the course all lawyers have to take. And I said rather than doing the old fashioned kind of, you know, ethics piece, let's look to the future. And the example I gave was if You know, a partner in a law firm came in and said to the team, listen, we're we're a bit low on billings this week. So could you throw out your computers and your mobile phones? I want you to type everything on an old ribbon typer. And if you make a mistake, throw it away, start again and record all the time you've taken using the typewriter because it'll get our bills up. Is that unethical? And of course, hopefully you'll agree, that of course, that's unethical. Mm. But the converse of that has to be if a law firm knows there is technology that does a more accurate and more efficient job for a client than the human lawyers that they've got and they choose not to use it, isn't that just as unethical? Mm. And I think when the regulators – fintech was driven not by the banks, the opposite. If you remember at the beginning of the fintech wave, the banks said, oh, it'll never catch on. All our systems are – you know we can never change. And it was the regulators that drove change. And until the legal regulators force law firms to be more efficient, mm. to use technology for the benefit of their clients, to go back to what I said, to help people, then the legal profession won't, won't change.
2: Half our listeners are extremely young, Mark. They're Googling ribbon at the moment because you've yeah. thoroughly confused them. <laughs> so you're working with Sheikh Hamdan on, let's say, disrupting on where Dubai is going to be in X number of years time. Give us, a, give us three forecasts.
3: So, well, firstly, you know, all credit to Sheikh Hamdan and the team at the Dubai Future Foundation. They've built a a team of people and the idea is to envision what the future will hold for Dubai and work backwards to what would be the impediments to that future and then to try and remove those impediments now so that as the future unravels, Dubai is way ahead Mm -hmm. of any other uh, city-state to to, to be able to to reach it. So amazing visionary stuff, no other place in the world Mm -hmm. Is doing this, so that that's amazing. I think I'll give one prediction of the future. Um, It's borderless. The future is borderless. The concept of a nation, which we began with the Treaty of Westphalia in 1686, something like that, um, is is no longer. It's anachronism in a world which is digital. So, as we move to a borderless environment, the nation states that embrace borderless trade, borderless commerce, borderless currency. Will attract wealth, and those that don't, that try and contain people and control people within a, within borders and boundaries and, and 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 barriers, they will lose people.
2: And how does that link with you know you've got certain countries becoming a little bit more protectionist at the moment?
3: Yeah, it's it's the natural reaction, I think, to the loss of of what they are known as the economically productive. The economically productive tend to be mobile; they're no, otherwise known as digital nomads. I don't think people understand the scale of the value of the digital nomad community. It stands at about 36 million people worldwide. The economic value of the 36 million is over four trillion US dollars. They represent the same economic value as Germany's GDP. Wow. And so every nation's trying to get them. But, you know, no longer will they come because you say I've got a border you can live in and you'll pay what I tell you to pay and I'll control you. The nation has to say, hey, I'd love to work with you. Why don't we work collectively, communally to do this?
1: Uh, Mark, security has walked into the studio, uh, which is never a a good sign. Uh, (laughs) Listen, we could speak for hours and we've gone well over on this occasion. No, no, no. No no apologies from you. It's apologies from us. It's just fascinating, fascinating uh, material and content. If people want to continue this conversation, if people want to stay in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, uh, just search my name online. There aren't many of us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mr. Beer, OBE. Uh, Mark, thank you so much indeed. Great to have you back here in Dubai. Enjoy your stay and thank you so much indeed for popping in. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Neil. Starting up with Virtue Zone.
0: This is Starting Up with Tom Urquhart and Virtue Zone.
1: Business set up with no regrets.
0: On Dubai I 103.8.
1: Now, welcome back to Starting Up with Virtue Zone. Huge thanks to Mark Beer OBE for joining us live in studio for our success spotlight now, and we turn our attention to the big talker of the day. Many businesses uh, start out as a one-person team, one person with a dream, uh, and as your business grows, so should the team. The dream becomes the team, and while there are thousands of layoffs in well across the world right now, the UAE Touchwood seeing the exact opposite, or certainly not as much as we are in other parts of the world. Many businesses here are, in fact, expanding at the moment. About 60% of the businesses hired more people last year and spent 17% more on salaries. That's according to the latest data released by the employee benefits platform, Bezat. Hiring your first staff can be tricky. As a founder, you're really taking a risk by trusting them and letting them run the company with you. So how do you hire the best talent for your startup? question is ask the best recruiters and that's exactly what we have in studio as well a question we're going to answer in the next half an hour or so with our special guests uh, the founder of mccabe and partners and an executive search company based here in the region is mr ben mccabe who's been kind enough to join us ben good to see you as always thank you very much for the invitation good to see you too tom nice to have you on board uh, and paula jacobson has worked for get ready huda beauty no less before setting up her own people her own culture consultancy called do the most paula lovely to see you thanks for joining us
0: thank you for having me tom um question
1: for you both to kick things off when do you know it's time when do you know it's time to to take the the leap of faith if you are and start hiring your first staff i mean you go into these sort of ventures thinking i can do it all myself i'm a superhuman but when do you start hiring paula start with you
0: so i would say when you're at 80 percent capacity (laughs) i think if there's stuff that you genuinely can't do yourself and you need outside expertise start with freelancers start with hiring other consultants start with using external agencies and learn how to work with them first before you commit yourself because the overheads of hiring someone it's not just overheads it's not just financial it's also you know looking after their welfare looking after their career growth so think very carefully i'd say until you're quite stressed out don't think about hiring the first person Ben,
4: yeah i think paul uh, you probably make a great point uh in terms of capacity you can scale a business but you can't scale yourself Um, I think, you know, as a good entrepreneur with an early stage idea and company, you really need to lean into your network and be almost a good hustler, really. You need to sort of, you know, draw upon resources as much as you can get for free in your first year will obviously help you scale the business and invest it in areas that you can. So if you can tap into the gig economy, build a board advisory where you lean into experts in the region within your sector, then you can obviously draw upon their experience to help you scale
1: those ideas. Are there certain skills you're looking for from first hirees as it were are there certain elements or certain parts of character that you're looking for before you expand the team
4: definitely um, i'm trying to really revolutionize the way that we perceive and hire talent in the region not only just the region but also globally people think that experience is actually your most reliable future predictor for successful outcomes is actually the least reliable which is a bit of a shock and awe tactic but we've developed a bit of a five box uh, model which actually assesses other areas including experience but actually becomes The last in terms of how we measure, we actually look at things like intellect, you know, your speed of accuracy, how you obtain and deliver new information, your personality, behaviors, motivations. Then we look at experience because what you did before doesn't necessarily mean you'll be able to apply that in your future role. So for good startups, you want to be considering uh, more will versus skill-based hiring because you won't be able to compete for the talent in terms of like compensation. You have to get a little bit more creative in terms of where you actually look into tapping into that talent pool and actually assessing other areas that share those values that like you are and actually want to be part of that future growth.
1: Paula, agree?
0: Yeah, I do, actually. I value I value Will um, over Skill Any Day because if you, if you want someone to stick with you from the beginning to the end, you, they need to be a visionary. I think finding other visionaries is really important and you need to have someone that's going to weather the storm with you. Because it's not always going to be pretty there are going to be storms it's going to be a rocky road someone who's got resilience and someone also who's really resourceful so can solve problems and not just stick in their kind of box that they're in so
2: though. a classic mistake is you recruit someone you like and then you find you've got three of you and of course you're terrible for example not talking about myself at all about organization and time management yeah. so yeah. you mentioned values I, I, I love that so how do you find people who are very different but have the same values
4: uh, good question. I think, you know, it's all probably plays into the narrative around, you know, how do you really embed diversity, equity and inclusion in your boardroom or just generally at any level in your organization? If you have people that look and think the same as you, that's not going to create a, a more, you know, thriving, more creative business model. So, you have good parties though, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But actually, you know, it's been proven profitably wise, you know, to have businesses that have diverse leadership teams in place. You know you need to sort of you know source people not just based on where what they look what you know their age their gender their color their, you know their sort of identity um you really need to be sort of testing you know their behaviors their personality and actually bring that diversity of thought because you could have somebody that looks uh, you know i had an example with a business that wanted to hire a black female cto for example and i said to them you know that's great but actually you can have a black female cto who thinks exactly the same as a white male you know, it doesn't bring, but they could have had the same upbringing, you know, they could have gone to Oxbridge, they have the same sort of, you know, um, building, but actually from a cognitive diversity point of view, that doesn't bring around true diversity in the workplace. Um, so that's why I think you need to sort of, you know, really unpack and look at the cognitive behaviors to ensure that you're building that diverse
1: Something I team. want to dive into in more detail. We're out of time. Well, I'm not out of time. I've got loads of time left when we come back. I want to talk about diversity. We want to talk about hiring. I want to talk about how that creates a culture within a company as well. We want to talk uh, co-founders and founders uh, amongst other uh, topics. <laughs>
0: Listening to Starting Up with Tom Urquhart and Virtue Zone.
1: Business setup with no regrets
0: on Dubai Eye 103.8. Indeed,
1: starting up with Virtue myself and uh, Neil Petch in studio with you, and we've been joined this morning. Uh, Paula Jacobson is the founder of Do the Most Consultancy. consultancy. She's live in studio uh, with us alongside Ben McCabe. Ben's the founder of McCabe and Partners, an executive search company. Company culture paula let's dive into that now if we can again going back to ben's point a little uh, earlier on about uh, early hires and what sort of skills you're looking for and the experience you're looking for etc how important that is that to sort of set a company culture or do you think you need to be thinking about company culture even before you start hiring
0: absolutely yes i think people often get a bit lost with company culture because it's kind of intangible um I think it comes down to a lot more practical things than what people really think about. So ways of working. So how do you communicate with each other? What channels do you use? How often do you meet? Um, Also things like working hours. Do you offer remote working? These are the things that people always ask first in an interview. So ultimately it's what they care about the most and things like delegation of authority. I think that's super important. You need to think about that from before the first person that you hire. So, I'm the ultimate decision maker, but how do I pass that along? How do people get approvals? And these small day-to-day practical things actually result in what your your culture is. Um, And it can become really frustrating if it's not done correctly. So you really need to think about that first.
1: Is your culture fixed from the off or does it evolve?
0: It depends on how it's structured. So I think if you have a really strong kind of visible founder who's really the driving force, it's probably going to stay... Around you know what their beliefs are, what their values are, but obviously the more people you bring in, the big the bigger you grow. It will change, but I think it will always be centered around that that one person if they remain the same.
1: So that's an interesting segue to 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 something I wanted to ask you, Ben, about you know founder force. I love that idea of founder (laughs) force and the sort of force of energy that is the founder, etc. So. Co or no, I suppose, is the follow up. I mean, a lot of companies have co founders. Um, You got co founders, or are you just.
2: Absolutely. I have, have, unfortunately, a very handsome one. (laughs) 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 I'm blighted with this problem in all the jobs that I do, Tom. Take a look at yourself.
1: Where, where, where? Uh, You're making me blush now. (laughs) Uh, Oh, no, behind. Okay. Um, What's your sort of take on founder or co founder? Um, where possible, always co-founder.
4: I think primarily if you're future, in the future looking to raise funds, having a co-founder, uh, part of that team will make you more investable. And the metrics are there to sort of back that up reason being, if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, there is no business. So investors are looking for people that, you know, continuation, if you leave, if who's going to run that business, because the investor doesn't run the business, they provide the capital clearly. Uh, so I think also from a from a sanity point of view, you know, I, I started my business as a solopreneur, effectively, luckily now have a business partner on board with me uh, in the UK. And it's been refreshing having her in the last year, just to have that sort of sanity check as a soundboard, effectively to sort of test you also on your are you true to your mission and, and vision. So having that some you know that sort of uh, soundboard effectively to go after. So, crudely from a financial and future of investing point of view, clearly that's going to be quite attractive for investors. But I think also to sort of ensure that you're on track and driving the business forward, it helps sort of sharing the workload clearly.
2: Paul, a question for you. Um, we're trying to create the very best environment so we can recruit the very best people. You mentioned remote working. We at zone we, we've, we've just had a workshop on mental health. And I think that we believe that the stress levels are higher than they've ever been. That's perhaps just a fact effect, effect of, of, of life. When you're faced with, you're recruiting, Ben, you mentioned a CTO earlier. You've got two candidates. You've got the better candidate, but they're going to be remote. They're going to be working from someone else versus someone that can be in the office every day. How do you manage to get the best of both worlds in that situation?
0: Gosh, that's the tough one. I think it depends. Because I need to answer <laughs> this myself,
2: so please help.
0: do, do are, are most of your team based around you? Say that again. Are most, most of your team based? with you in the same office
2: yeah at the moment yes but we're trying to create a situation where people can commute less work more efficiently and and look after their families see their families a bit more and you know we're really investigating that at the moment to see where we can transition to and but also take advantage of Dubai's brand and the fact that we've got brilliant people who were perhaps working in places in, in the world that are not so conducive to to yeah. safety and, and 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 so on so that's Opportunity that we want to take advantage of?
0: Yeah, I think the key word there is trying. So it hasn't happened yet, and I think that's very practical. Again, always coming back to practicalities when it comes to culture. It it might be a pipe dream that one day you have the ability to do remote work, but if it's not happening now, then if you bring someone on board, they're not going to fit what's happening in your organization now. So I think setting people up for success is really important with that kind of thing. If your preferred way of working is to, to be able to meet someone tomorrow or, um, you know, we've got Mark here who's who's come t- to join this interview today. So if that's something that you prefer, and in reality, you know, for someone to get your approval or for someone to work on a project with you, you like to see their face, you like to vibe with them, connect with them, um, it's important to recognise that and just have someone that's in the same area and not kind of overcommit to something that you can't sort of, you know, say you're going to go to England every month because, in practicality, that might not work. Mm-hmm.
1: Taken on board. Taken on board. <laughs> Message received. Ask, I mean, my my him for opinion, a friend, Yeah, asking for a friend.
2: <laughs> my, exactly. My opinion is, I know what I'm comfortable with, but I I I feel I have to disrupt myself, mm. and so I try and surround myself with people who do challenge me. And one of the for the for the owners of businesses listening to this is. You know, if you're a very powerful individual, one of the problems with that is you don't hear and people are not quite so able to disagree with you.
4: Yeah, I think it's, it's all about um, trying to find the right balance, given the context of your business, what really needs most. There are certain functions that can perfectly work uh, remotely. Digital tech can be clearly done from you know, pretty much anywhere in the world. But, you know, the more creative uh, facing industries, I think, need that sort of team collaboration. I think it's finding the right balance. You know, as long as the work's getting done, I come of the view that it doesn't really matter where you are. You don't need to physically be present in an office to be your best self, in effect. And actually, if we go back to sort of, you know, related to inclusivity, we can bring more people into the workforces who are, you know, people of determination, people who maybe have visible or invisible um, disabilities that, you know, Prevent them from being in more comfortable in an office settings, so we can get more people from from that background into the workplace. So I think having this sort of hybrid approach will
1: hope will ensure ultimately that no one gets left behind. Is that something you're seeing at the moment, Paula? I mean, is the is is the work pool or the recruitment pool out there? As diverse, uh, as inclusive as, as it's ever been. A lot of companies might look at it and go, oh, it's just a, you know, there's a lot of tick in the boxes. There's a lot of um, targets that need to be met, uh, met at the moment. But I'm hearing from a lot of companies saying it's just opening up a world of opportunities from them, a whole new way of thinking about their business.
0: As in having remote workers?
1: As in having, uh, in terms of the, the workforce, a lot of people saying that you know younger employees in that workforce, um, those, uh, as you said, people of determination, uh, diversity elements as well that's coming in, the emiratization numbers that are also coming in, a lot of people might look at it negatively, but the positives are there to be had by all.
0: Yeah, I think it, it definitely comes back to who the founders are. I think if you're looking at it from a startup point of view, And you've got that unconscious bias piece as well. So Mm. while the diverse the the diversity might be there in the talent pool, are they seeking it out? So I don't think there's enough yet. And I think certainly, even using gender as one example, obviously I'm I'm a woman, and you you don't see as much representation. It you know not necessarily with co-founders, but on boards, for example. So I think that. As one example, I still don't see enough of that. I think in this country, we do, with the government, I think there are lots of female ministers, but I think there's still a lot of work to do across all sort of um, characteristics and categories.
1: More work to be done. Um, Listen, got a couple of questions coming through uh, to wrap things up. Uh, Ben, one to you. Uh, Somebody asking, Chris asking, uh, shareholding in a company, is that a good idea for new employees? Absolutely.
4: Uh, so, I'm a big advocate for the B corporation movement, which is all about removing the responsibilities or sole purpose of a business and a director to be purely shareholder driven. Where I believe, as do many now, is you should be more stakeholder driven. So, creating value for your—it's uh, all related to ESG. So, you know, related to your suppliers, your employees. So, I think you know, in, in the context of a startup, absolutely. You know, you're as I said to you earlier very, very difficult to compete on salaries, but people want to sort of be part and have ownership. They want to be part of the growth and future success of the business. So giving them a very small share allocation, however however small it might seem on, on day one, actually gets people more vested in the future success of business. And again, it goes back to behaviours and motivations. They're the type of people in an early-stage company that you want to be part of that. So, yeah, having a vested interest in the company, I think, would be a very smart idea.
1: Paul, a question that's come through from you from Zander this morning, uh, asking about the culture of a company. Uh, Should we hire talent for the immediate culture or should we be looking more long-scale than short-term?
0: I think long-scale because like I said, when, when I was talking about someone weathering a storm with you, you, you need to have a long term goal. I think that's one thing that surprises me a lot with people that I speak to, they don't actually have a three or a five year plan, which might not sound very exciting or cool when you're starting up a business. But you need to be thinking of things for the long term, you know, how is someone going to grow it and grow in your company and, and be that visionary with you. And if you're looking at will over skill, for example, where do you see them in five years time? And what promises are you making? What What opportunities are you opening up for them? So I think long-term is much more important. Tom,
2: I also want to come back on on the shareholder thing. It it, it can be potentially a bit of a glib answer. Yes, of course, everyone should immediately have shares in the company and thus be much more motivated. As a business owner, it's very difficult to to set that uh, system up immediately. The first stage of becoming, as Ben said, a stakeholder – is to understand where your company is going, what route it's on. So if everyone in your company knows exactly where you're driving, why you're driving there, feels part of making it happen, then they're already a shareholder. Mm.
1: Shareholding in the vision. There you go. Look at that. Listen, guys, can't thank you enough. Uh, Paula, do the most. You you are the founder of the consultancy Do The Most. If people want to get in touch with you, Paula, uh, and your team, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: They can look on my website, which is global.com or find me on LinkedIn.
1: Bless you. Thanks for your time Thank this you so afternoon. Much. And Ben McCabe, founder of McCabe & Partners. So if people are looking, where do they go? Uh, you can find me very active normally on LinkedIn. Uh,
4: my website, obviously, www.mccabeandpartners.com. I will be releasing my first impact report for 2022, better late than never, but that will detail a little bit more around what
1: hopefully is some of the positive impact we've created in the last 12 months. Good on you. Congrats thanks very much congrats indeed uh, Paula Ben bless you thanks so much indeed for your time uh, this afternoon this is starting up with VirtueZone.
0: This is starting up with Tom Urquhart and VirtuZone.
1: Business set up with no regrets.
0: On Dubai I 103.8.
1: Uh, wrapping things up down here at starting up with VirtuZone quick reminder if you want any answers VirtuZone is the place to go at VirtuZone hashtag be your own boss. Uh, please do get in touch with the VirtueZone UAE team they will have the answers but we're going to wrap things up with a little talking point veering away from the company clinic talk about an important issue as is business owners instead of working nine to five you work in 24 7 trying to grow and maintain your business success while many of you are high performers, there are small pressures that pile up that you don't notice there's now a new word for that it's called get ready micro stress uh, authors rob cross and karen dylan say this is a concern for the most leaders in a company unlike stress which is big Visible, obvious, micro stress, it is small ickle bumps in the road that actually accumulate inside us and it can be very harmful. Examples snoozing the alarm clock in the morning, uh-uh, getting stuck in traffic on your way to work, uh-uh, coming home to a messy house, or hearing criticism about yourself. Uh, Neil's still in the studio with us and Mark's been kind enough to stick around in studio with us, so interesting to get both their thoughts on this one. Is this a thing, Neil, or is just this another one of those phrases that has just been made up? Hearing criticism
2: about myself. Now, let me think about it. (laughs) Yes, it it, it definitely... Evening, darling. (laughs) And that's what she said, actually, a micro-stress. That's what she called me. So
1: I, I suppose I should put up with that. It gives me an opportunity to improve, Tom. As a business owner and a founder... Are you conscious, you and not just you, but you and the team conscious of work in the stress place? Do you keep your eyes out for red flags? Yeah, I think that we, we
2: really have to, because it's so easy to be motivated yourself when you're a business owner. You said 247 and, and so on, and to expect that everyone else is going to share that passion. Well, that's that's a little bit naive. So we do have to listen. We do have to accept that things are changing and, and look to get ahead of the curve. That's why we've got the futurist in, Indeed, in the we
1: yeah, Mark Beer, OBE, still with us here in studio. Listen back to Mark's uh, interview. Fascinating interview on our podcast after the show. Uh, I mean, Mark, during your career, has there been a sort of, has there been a game change when it comes to the recognition of stress, this move towards wellness, this acceptance of mental health in
3: the workplace? Certainly. And I am a great believer that the big stresses people are often able to cope with. But the The accrual of small stresses and the way they build and the way they translate into behaviors, unfortunate behaviors which impact on others, which creates more stress. You can see how that cycle could become very destructive from a personal perspective as well as a a business environment. I remember years ago, uh, we, were, we were sitting at three in the morning in the office. We had a global project when I was at General counsel at MasterCard. And it involved staffing around the region, 72 countries. And the announcement we were making had to be done at the same time around the world. Uh, and we were at New York uh, headquartered. And at about three in the morning, Yolanda Singh, one of the best sort of HR people I've ever worked with, walked in and said, I'm going home. <laughs> so I said, Yolanda, we've got an announcement in two hours. You can't go home. And she turned to me. And I'd ask everyone who's stressed to bear this in mind. She said, Mark, I'm not a brain surgeon. No one will die if I go home. <laughs> and I often remember those words in times of stress. I think, you know what, if it takes another day, no one will die. So, you know, that sometimes you have to find a mechanism to take that stress away.
1: That. But- is the perfect place to leave it this afternoon, Mark. B, can't thank you enough. Great to see you back in Dubai. Uh, don't be going to be, don't go being a stranger anytime soon. Do come back and see us very soon. But uh, congratulations on all you've achieved and all the best with everything in the future, Mark. Likewise, Tom. And of course, Mr. Neil Petch. It's always a pleasure, never a chore. Not a brain surgeon, but a rocket scientist. Yes, in All does that. We'll uh, do this all again next Thursday, if that's all right with you. See you there, sir. Enjoy. A big thanks to Mr. Petch, to all the team at zone at zone at zone UA e-hashtag be your own boss.